Dr. Anne Taylor studied at Harvard Medical School, practicing as an endocrinologist at Mass General Hospital before shifting over to Pharma, now sitting as AstraZeneca's chief medical officer. This episode is full of wisdom. We talk about being a generalist versus being a specialist at life, what she learned from leaving medicine and entering pharma, and her tips for medics who want to do great things outside of the clinic. I hope you enjoy. Would you mind telling me a little bit about your story? So how you got to where you are today? Sure. I've lived long enough that the story's gotten longer, right? Um, I was one of those people that fortunately have always been interested in everything and oh, and um, did well in school. I can remember starting at age 10 or so, I'd spend the summer with my grandparents and my grandfather would say, what do you want to do with your life? And I'd always have three or four things on the list, of course, that changed every single year. But the second question he always had was, um, what are you going to do to get there? And I think that was a really important lesson to start, even though I had no clue when I was 10, it was an important lesson to start thinking along those lines. I um, deliberately chose a university where I didn't have to declare a major to start with and had a that had a very broad um liberal arts education to start with because I couldn't make up my mind. And when I finally had to choose a major after two years, I chose biology because I did well in it, but also it seemed to have the broadest number of options of what I could do as a career. And then I chose pre-med because there were so many different ways to be a doctor, just as you and I have been discussing, right? You can be a clinician, you can be a um, academic, a teacher, you can be in public health, you can be in business development, um, you can be in politics or policy you, you, and public health and all kinds of things. Um, and then when I got through medical school, it's like I picked internal medicine because it was as many organs of the body as possible. And then I picked endocrinology because the, or, those hormones touch every organ in the body and you start to get the picture. Um, but one thing that changed for me is I had um, I, I come from a family of six kids. So I was very conscious of what medical school was going to cost me. And so I chose to do in the U.S. what they call the National Health Service Course Scholarship because I thought I was going to be a primary care doctor in an inner city area and contribute to health policy. And by the time I got through school and needed to um, re meet those needs, I um, they had changed the criteria and it was now rural areas only that qualified and I didn't want to do that. So I was lucky enough to have a chief of medicine who direct me to, directed me to an endocrine lab and that really changed my life. I mean, it really made a big difference. I had never thought of specializing. I loved research, but I just didn't think I was going to do that. Um, and I spent a you know fellowship in the lab, out of the lab, then seeing patients and doing clinical research in reproductive endocrinology. And I would advise people if you you know if you have the interest that I, I tell people that getting those credentials of becoming an expert in something was extremely valuable to my career because it gave me um, credibility that I knew how to do stuff. The other thing that it did for me, which I had not looked for before, but I realized was really valuable, is it taught me about um, research, which means look around you, make a hypothesis, design a study to test that hypothesis, and then get a clear answer. And it's the clarity of the answer that comes out of the experiment that's really important. So um, from that, I did a clinical investigation that was mostly human physiology, but it helped me really well when I finally decided to go into the pharmaceutical industry because I knew how to um, 
query exper experiments, design them, and understand if you design it this way, you get this answer. And if you just if you did need a different answer, or if you have to answer a different question, you have to design the experiment a different way. And that was extremely valuable. And the reason I ended up leaving what I loved as an academic career is, um, and this may resonate with many of you, and I wasn't that young anymore. Um, I'd had a, I'd been at the hospital for 18 years, so um, is I had small children, and all of a sudden that quadruple threat of teaching, seeing patients, doing research, and then at that time I was doing some administrative work was really difficult with children because in a hospital setting they would set all the meetings outside patient care hours. So they were really early and late at night and I was having trouble getting home, right? And I just decided that thinking that another job with one responsibility would make it easier. Um, I learned quickly that it didn't reduce the hours. It just gave me more flexibility on them. I wasn't, um, I, I didn't have to do those um, early morning, late night, but I might have to do a weekend or something. Um, and I started in industry, again, in early clinical development, um, working closely with the scientists who were look at discovering um, new targets and making molecules and helping think through how you would test them in people and what they would be most valuable for. And I loved that work. I really loved it. Um, slowly got more responsibility, um, you know, leading people. Again, credentials really matter because people trust you that you have enough experience um, to do something. And then the next lesson comes, um, was just really important, is this idea of sponsorship. So I had, there was somebody I worked with at my first job, which is advisor, who had moved to Novartis. And he had the headhunter call me because he thought I might be good for an opening role. And then it turned out that the president of the research group, um, Niber, um, was somebody I'd known when I was at an intern at Mass General who thought I'd be good for the job. Um, and that kind of sponsorship, somebody who's watching out for you and recommending you for things has been a huge part of my success. And I would, um, I wanna call that out because it works both ways, right? I have a responsibility now to be a sponsor for others and to pull them in and say they can really do this um, because that made a huge difference. Um, as you probably heard, I started. I never started with a piece of paper saying, I want to be this kind of doctor and get here. I always had this serendipity, like, that sounds good. I wanted to do something I liked. That was a really important priority, but I was willing to change what I was doing along the way to take on opportunities. So I was um, offered the opportunity to change jobs and go to a different company. I was um, responsible for a larger group. And after five years, I was given another opportunity, which um, by the same president who said, I need somebody to take over a completely different job, which I'd never done before, um, managing what they called the program office, which, which was project management, knowledge um, management, um, portfolio, and strategy. You just heard me. I am a clinical investigator, reproductive endocrinologist. I'd never done any of those things, although I'd worked with people who did them. And I remember very well the first day the head of HR came in and said, you, you do realize you're taking on a role that you're not prepared for, right? You're, you're no longer managing people who 
you know what they do. You're managing people that you don't know what they do and you need to trust them and you need to take on a new leadership style. So that was a really great place to take that on because I had a lot of support, um, a lot from HR, frankly, and some um, leadership training opportunities. But to move to a place where you're leading a group, but you're leading by vision, right? You have a new way of being a leader, not because you're an expert and you could tell them the solution to the problem, because you, but you set a vision of where we wanna to get to and align with them about how to get there. And then your main job is to be their supporter, which means um, you know, uh, somebody to run ideas off of and to challenge and to question, but then to get out in front of them, protect them, and get them the, the funding and the people they need to do those jobs. So that was a really big opportunity in my career that changed a lot of the tra tra trajectory of what I did. I, I always, even at that time, started missing taking care of projects and patients, but it was um, a really great, great learning experience. And I did that for five years and then got asked to be the head of the clinical team at MedImmune. And just, and really wanted to get back closer to the clinic. Um, but it had clearly prepared me for that. Then we had a change of um, organization, which happens frequently in the pharmaceutical industry. For those of you thinking about it, it's not something to worry about. It's just inevitable um, trying to adjust to changing times um, and was offered that job to be chief medical officer. So it's not an, it's not the story in a nutshell. There's a lot of twists and turns. I think there's some principles. One is the um, being open to the changes. The second is um, that other people are important for your development. And the third is um, learning to lead with um, a vision and a story of where you're going. I want to, there's so much to pick up on there, but I want to pick up on one of the earlier points you made. And it sounds like, you know, you started off your career as a bit of a generalist and you were interested in everything. And then you said that you always give the advice that it's important to specialize and get your credentials. Could you just expand on that a bit? Like for a generalist, like yeah. why is it, why is it beneficial for them to become a specialist in something? Yeah, that's a great question. And I learned, I didn't believe it at the beginning, right? I, um, had an advisor who was always telling me that doing things like going to rural um, Tennessee to, to blood pressure screening was a waste of good doctors. And it took me a while to understand it. But um, you can be a generalist and be a special, an expert also, right? You could be a generalist who is an expert in how to screen for prostate cancer, right? Or an expert in um, how to design a clinic that's welcoming to all and doesn't have any um, biases, right? And, or that um, in, an expert in getting advocating for access to care. But I think you need to be special in some way because otherwise you're just like everybody else. And you need to show that you can take a concept and really do something with it. Um, that Because I don't think that total generalists are as proficient. I, I maybe that's snobbery and um, I'd be happy to have a debate about it someday. But I think it helped me a lot to show that I could um, stand out and do something. The other point I wanted to pick up on was about maybe that transition from when you left clinical and be being a totally a patient person to coming into pharma and the business world. What kind of things did you have to pick up? What kind of skills did you have to learn? That's a really good question. And I usually talk about that because it was a shock. Um, 
as you know, one of the most important socializations to be a junior doctor, right, is to learn to give orders, is to like assess a problem and say, this is the answer, this is what you're supposed to do, right? And to tell the people around you, the nurses and other staff, do this, right? Industry, you work on teams. And in fact, you can't be successful in the pharma industry if you go in with the attitude that you're going to give people orders because you work on a team with people who know how to do stuff that you don't know how to do. And it's really humbling, but you have to have somebody who knows regulatory. You have to have somebody that has to know how to make the drug. You need a chemist that understands what the risks are of the molecule itself. Um, and you need operational people to help you do the trials and conduct them. So you learn quickly that you're very dependent on a wide group of people with different kinds of experiences to help make the product the best. Um, I was really lucky. I, and I joined at a time when they were doing some major revamping of the training and I helped I got to be part of that. And it was a lot about what we talk about now, you know, diversity and inclusion and realizing that you need all those different perspectives on a team to make the best product. And it's both scientific expertise and, you know, knowledge um, expertise, but it's also that perspective. Often the clinician is a de facto leader of a team because we have a lot of the broad experience. We've seen patients, we know chemistry to a certain degree, right? We know basic biology and um, understand what the pharmacology studies show. Um, but you need everything. And there's a lot of people that are much better project managers than physicians. So that was really humbling, but really exciting because all of a sudden you were learning all these things that you'd never incorporated into your thinking about medicine before. And I really enjoyed it. I think, you know, if you think of the archetypal, you know, horrible senior doctor or a director or whatever, uh, they, they develop a bit of a reputation. And basically my question for you is, have you found either, you know, when you were in clinical life or now that you're more in pharma and the business world, do you ever need to be a bit of a dick to be a good leader? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't lead that way. Um, I lead by trying to inspire and support and um, hold people up so they can do it. Um, I lead by delegating and ask, you know, um, giving people a development opportunity to take on a new project. Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by, um, you know, being a bad person to lead. You do have to fire people, right? You do have to say, hey, I'm really sorry. Your performance review is you're not delivering what I need you to deliver. What can we do about this? And sometimes it means they depart. Sometimes it means you find them a different role that fits better. Um, some you, Once we did it by demoting somebody and saying, you know, you're going to be more comfortable where we don't expect so much from you. So it's not that you're sweet and kind all the time. Um, but if you do it in a way that's unemotional, I think that's the key is it's the emotion that makes it so miserable. If somebody is mad at you, um, that's really discouraging. If somebody says, hey, I need to give you some feedback. This isn't what I this is work isn't what I expected. And you do it in a caring way. You can be a good leader. You know, from the UK perspective, and I'm not sure if this is a totally UK-centric view, mm -hmm. but pharma potentially doesn't have a great reputation amongst clinicians. Do, do you think that's fair? I think there's fair parts of it, right? If, um, if you think of pharma as a 
a business that's just selling drugs for way too much money that doesn't do very much good than you could imagine. You, people might think that. If you think of pharma as, um, you know, I'm just looking at our building right now, it's huge with labs, a lot of basic scientists discovering um, things, understanding how uh, diseases work, finding new drugs for them, and then testing them in people and deciding whether they work well enough and providing new options. I don't think it's fair at all. Um, I think what we do in R&D um, contributes a huge amount to human health. Um, just look, for example, um, in a primary care model, the, what's happened with um, diabetes drugs in the last um, 10 years, you know, with the SGLT in, um, inhibitors in particular, to find out that they're actually helping in heart failure and in kidney disease. I mean, that's a huge contribution. Um, what we've done, I, and I would give the benefit to pharma companies, what we've done to reduce cancer, improve lifespan with cancer, that's pharma companies. So um, I don't think on the whole that it's unfair. I mean, I do think on, on the whole that it's unfair. I don't think um, it's a good description of what pharma can do. Do you feel, you know, in your role and your job, you know, when you were, say, a practicing uh, clinician or at least full-time practicing clinician, you obviously would have got a lot of satisfaction from, you know, uh, helping patients. But now you're having an impact at a much bigger scale and, you know, probably helping hundreds of thousands more people than you would have done in your original role. Does that feel better? Like, how is that subjectively for you? You know, it's a great question because I struggled with it from the beginning of medical school because I always did this to is it better to help one person or to help everybody right and of course that's an impossible answer and you can't you have to help everybody one patient at a time so i go back and forth i still try to be really helpful to one person at a time um but of course there is a lot of pride that comes from the bigger solving the bigger problems too right that has bigger impact um but every one person is individual and has and needs one-on-one -on -one care and, and trying to resolve that, right? It's really easy to say, we should do this, but then you have to figure out how to implement it. And that's one by one. Just going back to the start when you mentioned your uh, granddad's advice, it sounds like you're a very pragmatic person. Is that is that fair to say? Yes. And I lead that way as well. Um, you know, when somebody's struggling, it's uh, we often just say, well, let's break it down and what can we do right now? And let's do that to get started. I'm a big believer as well, um, and I've learned this over the years, um, especially with all the IT and digital advances, this idea of a minimal viable product, get something out there and see if it works, and then you can start tweaking it. Don't like make this perfect thing with all the marketing and the bow is tied um, first. You need to like get something that people can play around with and test to see if it's the right answer or not. Um, so that's a very pragmatic approach as well. In someone of your position, does it become difficult to get feedback on yourself or advice? Because I can imagine that you eventually get surrounded by a lot of like, yes, men and yes, women and that type of thing. How does that work? Yes, you're absolutely right. But everybody has a boss. <laughs> you know, even the CEO has the, the board to refer to. So bosses, um, frankly, I think get more and more critical as you get more senior. They figure you can take it at number one. Um, I mentioned before, and um, which junior doctors may not appreciate the value of, of good HR support, because a good um, human resources person that's helping you with your hiring and other stuff 
will a good one will also give you feedback on how you're coming across and what your the impact of your behaviors. And then um, in industry, from the very beginning, we start to take leadership courses, and those often include. Um, 360 feedbacks where you're getting written input from people that report to you as people that as well as peers and um, bosses and so you start to get a story over time about how what your strengths and weaknesses are that um, and I found I, I've learned a ton from those opportunities I would highly recommend them as soon as you can get an opportunity to do it I was reading a different interview you did and one of the pieces of advice you gave was to look in someone's eyes shake hands firmly in another era and be brave. What does that mean? Well, the being brave has to do with taking risks, right? And there's two sides of this. One is you have to know the person, right? Um, you, you have to acknowledge that they, are, um, they have their own views and you need to really listen to what perspective they're bringing to the table. And then um, taking risks is about, you know, making that gut judgment. Do you want to work with that person? And then what are you going to do together? And then how do you communicate it out there? Um, I spend um, a lot of time advising people that, especially in pharma, we're doing experiments. I'm in R&D. I've always been in the R&D side. We do experiments every time, right? It's whether it's a study or trying a new way of doing something. And if you get everybody or, or the management around you, to, if you set it up to say, I'm going to try this. This is an experiment then there's nothing to be afraid of if it doesn't work because you've laid it out from the beginning as something you're going to try. And so that gets you in the mindset of um, what are the endpoints? How do you tell if it worked or not? Um, and But it also gets the buy-in that you didn't take the risk by yourself and others um, bought, bought into to trying that effort. It's, it's really obvious when you're doing a clinical trial. It's less obvious if you're going to try to um, restructure or teach something a different way, but you get the idea. What have you learned about decision making? Yeah, I've learned that you never have all the information, that you always have to make some decisions with um, gaps. And you can, and I do that in a risk, I'm pretty analytical about it in a risk based way, right? What's the worst that would happen if we make this decision? What's what is the what would happen if we don't make this decision and try to weigh those two because um, we have to take risks and we have to have gut feelings about some of these things. Um, I do spend a lot of time for things that I know have um, legal or regulatory consequences to dig in a bit deeper. Um, obviously, if it's a huge budget consequences, um, but other things I often say, Sure, the risk here is relatively small. Go for it. When I, you know, someone from my position looks at your career, it looks incredible and you just think, wow. But I'd be really curious and interested if you could share any big failures you've had and perhaps what came out of them. Sure. I, I mean, big failures. I, in the program office um, job at Novartis, I, I consider it a failure. We had a change of presidents and the new one that came in did not um, see the value of what we did in quite the same way, didn't see the value of keeping it in one organization, and we broke it up into multiple organizations. And I felt like a failure that I hadn't been able to convey um, adequately the value of that. And I guess that um, leads to another analogy, which um, people 
what I find is people have business training approach these problems completely differently. And I, um, I don't know if it's the business or some other exposure, but um, I think that I've been one of my weaknesses has been in stakeholder management and um, really getting out in front of people to say, hey, this is what we're doing. Isn't this awesome? I tended to be a bit more um, introverted and assume that people will see the positivity. And so if I think that's true for anybody and your audience as well to be you do need to be an advocate, a much stronger advocate for yourself. And I probably um, over my career could have done that more strongly. I wanted to just get your learnings from public communication, which I suppose kind of links to stakeholders as well. Yeah. Um, you know, the say the AstraZeneca vaccine is interesting because in some parts of the globe, people are stockpiling it and, you know, very after it and other parts, people are shunning it. Is there anything that you've kind of learned about communicating with the public that you might not have known if you weren't in your current position? Oh, wow. I've learned a lot. Um, I'm not sure I can put it into a summary that's quick. Um, one thing is when you have a company that, that's this big and lots of people with different responsibilities, um, pulling that all together into a single message has been a challenge, right? That this person thinks a little bit this way and this this way. We try to use our global communications group to make sure that we have an aligned message. Um, but that uh, was really obvious to me the first time, again, I mentioned to you, I didn't do a very good job with communications and haven't appreciated it, but this is one place where I've really appreciated the value that a coherent communication approach brings so that we have a consistent message. Um, the other part of it, though, is that you're responding to real life events, right? And things are changing really fast. Um, and we had to be on top of it as quickly as we could, which was often emergencies to manage um, emerging data. And um, it's another example where we had to make decisions where we didn't know everything yet um, because it, things were coming out as more and more people got vaccinated. Um, we probably could have done a better job as an industry um, explaining early on why vaccines were important. And I think that was probably missed. That was, you know, in the US, it was partly fragmented um, by states. I think um, the each country has done it differently. There's been so much politics and it. it's been really sad. It's my opinion. So feel free to disagree with me here, by the way, but it seems like to get to this stage, you have to make certain sacrifices throughout your life or your career. Now that you, you know, you look back, A, do you think you've had to make sacrifices? And B, has it all been worth it? That's a great question. Um, the sacrifices I made um, were never doing something I didn't like or something I didn't um, believe in. And so I think everybody has to have their bottom line of what they will do, right? So I remember when I took the role at um, Novartis that my boss asked me, what did I need? And I said, I need to be home for dinner. Um, and he said, absolutely, you should be home for dinner. So I, um, and if you had a boss that said, sorry, that's not possible, I might not have, I probably wouldn't have taken the job, right? So everybody has to think through what that minimum expectation for them is. Um, I was not the kind of person that sacrificed above all else. I often worked nights and weekends, but I, 
did if it was somebody's birthday party that I'm invited to, I wouldn't have worked that night, right? I know other people that would make a different choice to say, I have something to get done by tomorrow morning. So I'm, you know, going to miss my kid's birthday party. Well, I wouldn't make those decisions. But again, everybody has to make choices of what they're willing to sacrifice. Um, and working long hours, I was willing to sacrifice. There were definitely periods where I was getting really frustrated by it, feeling unappreciated maybe, or and, um, and feeling cranky. And then when that starts happening, I have to find a way to take a break because you've you got to get away from it sometimes and put your mind somewhere else to be able to get the perspective back about what's important that you're working on, what you can prioritize. Um, but I've learned that along the along the way. I know we've spoken about this throughout, but I wanted to ask it on its own. And the question was, have there been any habits or ways you've approached things throughout your career that have been helpful? Yeah, I have found, and you can get the feel of this, I have found that I do need to take time for myself. I am not one of those people that can get by in four hours of sleep. So I prioritize sleep. I prioritize exercising. I um, try to spend time with friends and do other and deliberately find time to do something to give my mind a break. I can remember one weekend when we were working through some vaccine issues and I wasn't available for a couple hours. It said I had to go take a walk, guys. I just couldn't do this. And and to talk about it helps, right? Because then you're setting good um, role modeling for others that you um, that everybody needs, right? To to take those breaks. Um, the other thing is I really try to be positive um, and deliberately express positivity to people around me because if I'm negative my team will be negative and everybody will be in the dumps. And it's my job as the leader to bring everybody up, to energize them, to provide the stimulus and the plus, not to be the one that they're afraid of or that it's going to bring them down. You mentioned another book that you read earlier, but do you have any other book recommendations that you think would be worth reading for someone who's young and hoping to do great things? Um, there are a ton of leadership books out there and I hate to say it, but I don't, remember the titles very well. I did think thinking fast and slow is really helpful, a really different way to think about leadership. Um, another one might be um, a book, and it doesn't really matter which, the concept of situational leadership, where you adjust your style based on what the person needs. So when it's a brand new person, you don't assume they know how to do it, and you help tell them what to do. And if it's a senior senior veteran, you don't tell them what to do. You help them come up with a vision of where it's going and you interact in a completely different way. Um, I found that one of the most helpful um, lessons for me. Another one that I found helpful, which I um, took me forever, I um, was books about negotiating. I always thought of negotiating as this really unpleasant thing until I finally read a book that suggests that called out that a negotiation is positive for both sides. Like if you um, go to buy a car and you take the first price they give you, then they think, oh shoot, I'm disappointed. I could have asked her for more, right? And if I had actually pushed a little toward you know, getting closer to what their bottom line was, then they were happy because they 
um, felt like they had started at a good place. And I'm happy because I got a little bit of a deal, right? And that concept had never dawned on me before. I saw negotiating as a really ugly, difficult um, thing to do. So those are some, some of the, um, so they're not books per se, but they're um, topics for people to look up. The last thing I wanted to kind of ask about was when you look back at your career and the success you've had, how much do you think was from nature and how much do you think was from nurture? Uh, so I have been really interested in this concept of um, diversity and inclusion. And I am very aware that I um, was born on the right side, right? My dad was a lawyer. My um, mother had gone to college. My grandfather was an engineer. I had lots and lots of support and expectations put on me. Um, and I was also really lucky that I had um, men in my family who supported me having a career, right? I'm a little bit older where it's not quite so obvious. I was, you know, a medical school class was 20% women. And all the men around me said, absolutely, you should do this. You don't need to get married. You don't need to do this. You can support yourself. And so I um, feel very, very lucky that I had those opportunities. Um, and I know that I could have worked just as hard if I didn't have those opportunities and not end up with these advantages. Um, but I also know that working hard and you know, getting hard enough to get into the right schools and get those opportunities um, and make taking some risks. So some inherent stuff that I did helped a lot. So it's a mixture. But I'm very aware that somebody growing up with a very different background might not have had the chances that I did. Did you ever find that um, as a woman, it was harder in the business world or pharma world to kind of scale up? Yeah. Um, when I started in medical school, it was pretty bad. Um, you know, professors still giving absolutely sexist jokes in the classroom. Um, those kinds of biases. Um, but I, but I think it was quickly clear that the women were just as competent. So. It was more that um, the, the hostile environment that was difficult. I don't think it was ever a challenge for opportunities. But, you know, a lot of us um, go through stuff and then realize later, like, oops, I hadn't realized that that's what that was, some of the introspection. I feel terrible about one incident where I was at a party and a guy was making jokes to a woman and, um, and I didn't say no. I didn't say stop. And the next day... Um, there was a harassment case against him and I'd been witnessing it and I didn't do anything and I feel terrible. So some of it is us just having heightening our awareness, but, and sometimes you get that awareness because it happened to you and you know that it's not okay. And sometimes it's just other people teaching you over time. So um, I think I tolerated it as that's what it was, but in retrospect, there were some pretty, um, unpleasant environmental things less though about um i didn't feel like it was a glass ceiling the last question i wanted to ask you was say today you were you know a young 20s 30s medic who wants to go and do great things outside of the clinic room would you mind just giving a few bits of advice um, some you know really pragmatic and granular and others kind of bigger picture pie in the sky pieces of advice and on what kind of things you'd be doing now yeah, it's a great question. As I said, um, I'm not the best person for the big answer because I didn't go into it with a vision of where I was going to be. I was always just looking for what was really fun. Um, 
I would say talk to people. Um, if you if you can um, set a vision for what exactly you want, then find everybody that can help you get there, right? And get mentors, both um, senior mentors and peer mentors who have done that and find out what you can and get those introductions and make that network. If you're like me and you're really looking for something that um, you like, then do a good job at it while you're at it and then see you know, as the opportunities come along. And sometimes you will look for those opportunities because um, you will say, I'm done with this. I need something else. And as happened when I was when my kids were little. And sometimes they will come to you and you need to be open to them and talk to people. Um, and you have to think, you know, do you what do you what makes you happy? Be sure that what you're doing is something that you enjoy. I would never I would say for sure, don't do it just for money, please, because you won't be happy. <laughs> I hope you enjoy that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.